In this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the Zuchot of speaking to Rabbi Moshe Benevitz, the Managing Director of NCSY. Rabbi Benevitz is a respected Jewish educator and professional who currently teaches at Yeshivat Reshit in Ramah Beshemesh. He previously served as Director of Student Activities at DRS High School in Woodbury, New York, and MCA in Manhattan, as well as Brewerya in Elizabeth, New Jersey. He's a graduate of YU and earned his BA in Psychology and Rabbinic Ordination from YU. Thank you so much, Rabbi Benevitz, for joining us today. It's a real support to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to learning with you today. So it's Desert Island Torah. Three pieces of Torah that you would take with you to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? What do they mean to greater Jewish existence? Really looking forward to finding out your three pieces today. So are you ready to share your first piece with us? I am, yes. I mean, I want to reflect a little bit on the overall context. It's such an exciting type of format. Uh, definitely questions. I don't know, maybe in one form or another, I've considered them in the past, but not as as direct as this. Uh, I guess I would want to know the circumstances of also being on the desert island. Am, am I escaping from something? Uh, am I uh, am I totally alone on the desert island? What am I preparing for? Am I preparing for life of solitude uh, forever? Or is this a, a little bit of an exile in which I am preparing to return to civilization? All of those things might affect the Torah that I take with me. And um uh, but most importantly is is the question of three, meaning I don't believe there is, as the famous Gemara says regarding Hillel and Shammai and Torah al-Regal Achas, I don't believe that there is a way to which we can summarize or take with us only a single idea. I, I'd be partial to the variation of of the question that we find uh, that was famously asked of Rizal Salanter, that if a person only had a few minutes to learn during a day, what would he learn? And Rizal Salanter is said to have responded that they should learn Musser. Uh, and when they incredulously said, are you actually, he fell into the trap. Are you actually suggesting that Musser is more important than Kumara or Chubesh or Halacha or any of the other staples of Jewish scholarship? And he said, no, of course not. But one who learns Musser will discover that he has more than 10 minutes or an hour or whatever the format of the question is, he'd have more than that a day in which to learn. Uh, it, it's such an important lesson, whether that story is apocryphal or or accurately represented or not. The idea behind it is certainly not apocryphal, and it's such an important uh, message. So the thought exercise of the three Torahs that you'd like to share is valuable, and three meaningful Torahs is valuable, but it would be horrific um, to condense Jewish existence and, and Jewish scholarship and Jewish Torah to any three ideas. I would hope that if you ask me the same question tomorrow, I would give you three different answers uh, because this should be an, an, a, an iterative process. It should be something that is uh, evolutionary in a lot of ways, and it should be something in which it is impossible to choose uh, amongst them. So th this list is not at all uh, exclusionary in any way. The Gemara has a concept when it discusses certain lists of Mishnayas of Tana Vishir, uh, that the there's a list in the Mishnah, but the list is not exhaustive. I don't know if it's fair for the rules of this game to say whether the list is exhaustive or not, uh, but this list is not exhaustive. Uh, and any suggestion, believe no matter how high quality the ideas may be, uh, is going to create a, a corruption and a distortion of Torah. So with that being said, and that disclaimer, and all of the excitement and enthusiasm about answering the question, uh, I, I do have three that I think fit the desert island and, and that uh, I'd, I'd be happy to share. Obviously, the first is the first, A, because it 
is the answer to a question uh, that I do think about very often. I've been asked, which is, you know, a, a, the most meaningful Torah and the Torah that resonates in the in the deepest recesses. Uh, and and although it's a Torah that I heard a long time ago and originated centuries ago, uh, it's a Torah that I think has even greater relevance in contemporary times. So that's a a good thought. And I also think that it creates a kind of context for all Torah learning and for all Torah ideas. The idea is all of three words long. Uh, the the explanation and the build up to it is a little bit longer than those three words, but not not much longer than those three words. As a matter of fact, and the idea is found in the commentary. Uh, of the Mikros Gadolos commentary on Chumash in the words of the Rashbam, the grandson of Rashi, who wrote a commentary on Chumash that is pshat-oriented. So that there's not going to be anything fantastic over here or fanciful here, uh, but rather just a, a straightforward pshat explanation that supports the integrity and beauty of the Rashbam's words. The approach and the words align perfectly with each other. The Rashbam is found at the end of Parshas Vayeshev. At the end of Parshas Vayeshev, we read part of the saga of Yosef HaTzadik. We read specifically about his being thrown into jail and prison, in which he encounters two fellows, the butler and the baker. The butler and the baker are commiserating with Yosef in that in that prison cell, in that pit, and they each have a dream. They don't know what to do with their confusing dreams, and therefore they turn to this other fellow, this Yosef, and they confess to him that they've had a dream and that they have no solution to the dream. Yosef says, well, what do you have to lose? Give me a try. Maybe I can have some uh, success at interpreting your dream. The butler goes first. He describes his dream. And uh, Yosef interprets the dream to be a prediction of his imminent release from prison and his return of stature. At which point the but baker is extremely excited by all that is happening. And the baker says, me too. Let me tell you my dream. And maybe we can engage in some of this wonderful predictive behavior as well. And the Pasuk records that by saying, Bayar Sar Ha'ofim Kitov Pasar, that the Sar Ha'ofim observed that it was interpreted well, Kitov Pasar. Everyone, almost without exception, of the Mefarshim, this is the medieval Mefarshim, going back to the Midrashim, they ask the same question. How is it possible that in the darkness of this prison cell, the baker had become omniscient? What was good about Yosef's interpretation? What does it mean? mean that he saw that he interpreted it well? How could the baker possibly have known? When did the baker become omniscient? When did the baker become prescient? When did the baker develop the ability to determine whether Yosef was a complete charlatan making up the explanation? Whether Yosef's explanation had any accuracy whatsoever? How did the baker know any of that at all? This is the source of a well-known medrash quoted in some of the Mepharshim that says that not only did each of these gentlemen have a dream, but they each interpreted the interpretation of the other's dream. I'm not 100% sure what that means, or what that would look like, or why it took Yosef Atzadik for them to realize that they had dreamt about the other as well, and had interpreted their dream. There is a famous idea quoted by the Ramban, uh, which is based on Targum Unculus, that says that it's a nice grammar lesson in the English language, either Old English or Newfound English. Uh, it is a idea that Unculus brings down, that the word tov, there's a difference between the word good and well. To interpret something good is not to interpret something well. To interpret well is an adverb, good is an adjective. So we assume kitov pasar means that he interpreted it well, that he interpreted adverb, that he did a good job of interpreting the dream. That, of course, would lead us to our question of how is that even remotely possible? 
as opposed to if we leave tov in its traditional translation, which is an adjective, not he interpreted it well, but that he interpreted it good, this is the explanation that is quoted by the Ramban, that the baker was excited because not Yosef had done a good job of interpreting, but that he was a positive fellow in prison. This was a wonderful commodity. And in the Gemara Brachos, it's even a more wonderful commodity. As the Ramban points out, there is a rabbinic tradition that dreams follow their interpretation. A dream interpreter has to do with determining what the dream is going to be and what the dream represents. The interpretation will be part of a predictive process. And there Therefore, to read it as kitov pasar, that degree of optimism, the closest we could come to this, by the way, would be the psychological insight that optimism and positivity can breed, think good, and it will be good, that a positive outlook and a positive optimistic perspective can actually yield and influence results and behaviors in ways that are extraordinary. And this is a, a perhaps a more mystical version of that found in the Gemara Brachos, that dreams are subject to their own interpretation. I have a dream in night, it doesn't yet mean anything. But depending on who interprets it and how it's interpreted, that could determine what the dream represents and what the dream is actually predicting. This is the idea of the Ramban. However, this is all lead up to our three-word Rashbam. The three-word Rashbam, again, in answering this very same question, how is it possible that the Sarah Ophim knew that Yosef had done a good job? The Rashbam writes the following words, Nikarim divrei ms that there is a value to absolute truth when it is uncluttered or uncrowded by the deceits and corruptions of this world nikarim divrei ms that there is a clear and obvious truth that exists in the world and that it can be determined and once recognized it is recognized as such it is easy to ascertain when there is genuine truth being given about and i say that this is an idea that is ancient but with extremely important contemporary ramifications i don't believe there's ever been a time in human history where lies have been more, more rampant uh, where dishonesty has been more prevalent, where it has been harder to determine when something is true. We live in a world of alternate reality. We live in a world of virtual reality. We live in a world of fake news. We live in a world of, of making up one's own facts, one's own reality. We live in a world where everything is fluid and everything thing is defined by my whims and wishes, and there is no objective of truth that we ever encounter. We are so far away from the Rashbam's world of Nikarim Divrei MS. There is a, a reality that tells us that it is impossible to sometimes see the, the stars because of the light function that could exist in, uh, in a city. And you have to go out far away in order to see reality for what it actually is without the uh, influences and without the distortions that are created by so much of technology. I believe in our desert island example, there is a, a similar reality. When one is out isolated, completely alone, there is an opportunity of Nikarim there is a possibility to appreciate and to understand the truth of the universe, the way that it is, and to come into contact with that truth in a much more natural way. Absolutely. Really, really interesting and powerful idea, um, especially with the dreams, bringing that in as well. I, I love that. I mean, the story of Yosef is my favorite in Tanakh. So to connect, with that, to connect with that is always great. Um, but such an important message for our world. And it's always great to bring the Torah and society together.
Um, so yeah, thank you so much for sharing. What does that actually mean to you? Why is it so important to you? Because I, I, I think that very little happens without a commitment to truth. Uh, I, I think the notion of there, there are so many things we just do not know what's real and what's not real. We're, we're trained to do it. You walk into someone's beautiful home and you, you know, see they have a bouquet of flowers on the table. And then you want to figure out, are those are those real or are they not real? Is something a hologram? Is something an illusion? Now, now that that doesn't really matter. In fact, fake flowers can be every bit as impressive and and and, uh, you know, they can be a great adornment. And is just as much as real flowers are. I'm not advocating for authenticity in everything. But unfortunately, it's just an example of every part of our life when it comes to our relationships, when it comes certainly to our Torah learning, uh, when it comes to our encounters with nature, it, it's important to know whether we're looking through a, a screen, whether we're looking through a mask or whether we're viewing something that has that element of authenticity. And it's really the starting step. There's a reason why I'm starting with this idea. And that's because, like I said, this is this is a contextual idea. It's hard to do anything else without having this idea first and foremost there. Absolutely. So we're we ready to go into your second piece, Torah. Sure. Uh, and this is where I, I actually had had no doubt or reservation about the first piece uh, because of its its relevance and also because of its meaning to me. Uh, but when I get to the second and the third, that, there's where I said for sure uh, it'll change tomorrow and the next day, and it should. Uh, but uh, but these are these are some of the answers that I think have been most common for me over the past little while. Uh, and they're both uh, from contemporary thinkers. Uh, the Rashbam is, of course, a, a medieval commentary. Uh, these are much more um, much more contemporary examples, uh, but I think the answers are, are profound and, and actually quite timeless. So th there's a beautiful Sefer that I am, I'm extremely fond of. I believe it was just translated into English by Rabbi Ezra Bick, who is a Ram in Gush, um, who is a native Anglo, uh, but who wrote his, uh, the, the Sefer was written in Hebrew. The Sefer is called Tfilas Shmona Esrei, the Esodos Ha'emunah, uh, the, the explanation of our Shmona Esrei and foundations of belief. Uh, it is one of the most extraordinary svarim, I think, that's been published of late. Uh, and it goes through Shmona Esrei and has revelations of all of the, the deeper that I, ideas that are there. Uh, in the first, not the first chapter of the book, but in his analysis of the first bracha of Shmona Esrei, so he points out how many really, really strong oddities there are in that first bracha of Shmona Esrei, the bracha of, of Avos. So, so the bracha of Avos is impossible to define. Uh, one would imagine, we all know that we have a structure of Shmona Esrei, and that structure of Shmona Esrei includes praising God, then we go into asking God for things, and then we go into thanking God. Uh, and if we talk about praising God, so then we would expect to find things like Hakel Hagadol Hagibor Vahanora Kel Elyon. We would expect to find Melech Ozer Umoshia Umagain. What we would not expect to find is this emphasis on on the Avos. Why is the ultimate, the first praise of God being that He was the God of the Avos? What a what a what a bizarre thing that is. Why are we talking about the Avos? Uh, at all. We speak about the greatness of God. Okay, that has its own philosophical questions about why man would ever engage in such a futile process, such as praising or defining God. We'll leave that for a different day. But here, once we are doing that, we delve right away into God's ultimate praise as being that he was Eloke Abraham, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. So question number one is why is that a defining praise of God? Why is the first bracha that gives us all of these glorious descriptions of God, 
Why is that bracha so focused on the avos? It's that each three of them had their own individual connection with God, um, and each elokei represents each individual one's connection with God and their tefillah. Um, and I think it's a reflection of how we can also have our own individual tefillah. In the art scroll and in many other commentaries or translations, you will have this bracha defined as, in the little margin, the bracha of avos. Well, I thought it was the bracha of praise of God. How does avos and praise of God relate to one another? Second of all, in the usually there is a great deal of symmetry between the body of the bracha and the concluding part of the bracha. We speak about chonein l'adam das, and we, we speak about that in the end of the bracha as well. We speak about geula, or parnasa, or refua, or yerushalayim. We speak about it equally in the body of the bracha and in the concluding part of the bracha, bonei yerushalayim. And then bonei yerushalayim in the concluding part of the bracha. Here, we add something. We have this entire bracha about praise of God, including Kalagadalion, including Kalagadal Gibor Vahanora, all of these wonderful praises. And then we go back to the fact that he is the God of the Avos. But here we have two oddities, which will be our, I mean, we could ask a number more questions, or Vic does, but suffice it with these two additional ones. First of all, we refer to God, not just as the God of the Avos, but all of a sudden we introduced him that he is Magain Avraham. He is the shield of Abraham. That sounds very Marvel Comics-like. Uh, what is what is the shield of Abraham? What is what does that mean for God being Magain Avraham, not just the God of Avraham? And second of all, what happened to the other Avos? Why are we speaking all of a sudden only about Avos? It should be Magain Avos. Magain Avos and Magain Avraham are two equally common phrases in modern Jewish life. I live here in Ramat Beit Shemesh. There is a wonderful network of schools that are called Magain Avos. There is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch called the Magain Avraham. You could have gone in either direction. Wouldn't have made much more sense to say Magain Avos since we were explicitly talking about Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Why do we feel necessary to introduce Avraham here at all? And what does, this is included in the, in the middle question that we asked, what does Magain Avram even mean? What does it mean that God is the protector of Abraham? I would just, there is something very problematic about referring to God as a shield because that is a God that is extremely limited. It puts God almost like a, a Star Wars analogy. It puts God on our side in the in the fight between good and evil. But God's not on our side in the fight between good and evil. God transcends all good and evil, and God does not protect us from outside sources. He is the outside sources. So there's a there's a philo philosophical problem with Magain Avraham. What does Shield of Abraham even mean, and why does it have such a valuable piece of real estate? Uh, Rabbi Bix answer is absolutely uh, extraordinary. He says that the reason why Avram is singled out is because Avram represented the very first, not only the first one to pray, but the first one to stand in front of God and attempt to discover him. Avraham had, as Rabbi Bick writes, Avraham had no guide. Avraham had no role model uh, to, to understand what it was, who, what he was supposed to do. Avraham, in his religious quest for finding God, was exceedingly vulnerable. And that vulnerability is what led to the prayer of Magain Avraham. When we stand at Shimon Esrei, we are emulating the vulnerability of Abraham. 
We're emulating the vulnerability of a person who was seeking God, but it was on very unsure footing. That's almost a direct quote from Rabbi Beck. Avram Avinu could not possibly have been sure about what it was that he was seeing as he looked out on this vast world. God had not yet been a given as it is in our lives. And we too, even with all of Jewish history and even all of the examples that have been set before us, there are these moments in Tefillah where we are exceedingly vulnerable in our belief. That is the vulnerability that is protected that is the support that we have at the beginning of Shimon Esrei, Magain Avraham. A person tentatively steps towards into the world of belief, and God promises support and protection from those vulnerabilities and in those tentative steps. That is what we are meant to connect to and relate to when we say Magain Avraham. Our own weakness, our own foibles, our own past failures, our own doubt and uncertainty, these are the things that God promises us with a little bit of effort on our part that there will be a divine protection for and that our tefillahs in that sense will be rewarded in the deepest of ways. And before you even ask, uh, the reason why I think, besides the fact that it's one of my all-time favorite ideas, without a doubt, but the reason why that idea resonates so much for me in the context of this question is that I imagine that that desert island should be a metaphor. And as much as I said at the outset that I, 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 I have certain issues with the way the question is formulated, we're all on a desert island from time to time. And the silent Shimones right, is as much a time as ever to, to recognize that kind of desert island that we take with us. Magen Avram is what we need to take with us at those moments of desert island existence. Absolutely. And I was thinking, actually, as you were going through it, it's, it's a very connected thing to a desert island, um, especially when you're davening. It's you, it's you and Hashem. Yes. If you're on a desert island, it's really about how do I make Hashem part of this experience. And I think davening is definitely, and prayer is definitely something so important in such context. Um, and it's important to think about Avraham uh, in terms of our identity, who we are as a people, and bring that with us too, I think. So it's really right. powerful. Okay. Absolutely. So are we ready to go into your third piece? Yeah, I guess we have time for uh, for the third one also. So I will I will quote from your Lanzmann, uh, quote from the great uh, Lord Chief Rabbi Sachs. Uh, this is uh, of all of the beautiful ideas that he's represented. This is one of my two or three. You could have had your own podcast just of what are the three Rabbi Sachs ideas that you would take with you to a desert island. Uh, but uh, this would make the cut for that list. And, and here it made the cut for the list overall. Uh, and it's also an idea, I think, that does relate to the particular avoda of a desert island as well, because there is a there is something that we can accomplish when we're on a desert island that relates a little bit to the first point that we made about the lack of distractions and the ability to recalibrate. Uh, and now we'll 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 relate to what I alluded to in the introduction as well, which is a question of of is this desert island my new home forever, which might lead me to one kind of more depressing Noah-like Torah, um, you know, as it relates to, um, you know, Noah's replanting the world, but being stuck in his drunkenness, depression, and pessimism? Or is it a, a opportunity to be on that desert island and then to rejoin civilization a la Tarzan uh, better than ever before and stronger than ever before and what that recalibration could look like. In, in Parshas Pinchas, uh, this is found in one of the covenant and conversation pieces. I can't give you the exact maramakom. I know the H.com, Torah website has this piece in full. I did not, I, I, I didn't see it 
it's probably in Rabbi Sachs's printed Sfarim, and I'm sure it's on the website as well. But in, in one of the years, in, the, in one of the essays that he wrote on Parshas Pinchas, so in Parshas Pinchas, we read about some individuals other than Pinchas, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu and his successor, Yoshua. And Moshe Rabbeinu lays out the criteria for future leadership for the Jewish people. And that criteria uh, reads as follows, that he asks uh, for Hashem that he should appoint a person, Asher Yetzei Lifnehem, a person who goes out in front of them and a person who will bring them in from the outside. And who will go out with them and bring them in. There is an obvious redundancy there that Rashi already points out uh, that we need to understand. Why is the same phrase if we if we mix and match a little bit? The Torah potentially says that this next leader is meant to be Asher who goes out in front of them, and who takes them out. Those would seem to be exactly the same. Rashi actually gives two beautiful explanations uh, that are important to note. They are both very powerful and, and pretty emotional as well. Rashi's first explanation is that one of the great failures of leadership is hypocrisy and leaders who say, act as I say and not as I do. Throughout Tanakh, we read about two models of leaders. Uh, the best way to explain this would be in the Malbim's words in Sefer Shoftim regarding the difference between a katsin and a rosh. We find this in the story of Gidon and other places in Tanakh as well. A katsin, the etymology of that word, a captain in the modern day Israeli army, a katsin comes to the word kates. He is off to the side, like many an army general will be. I'm not going to go into battle with you, gentlemen, but I will paint you a picture on a board and direct you from afar. A, a coach of a sports team would be similar to this. He stays on the sideline, on the cates of the pitch or of the field, as opposed to being participating in the battle or in the game itself. A Roche, however, is not only the leader of the body, it is part and parcel of the body. It's not apart from the body. It is not the command center that is separated from the body, but it is one of those organs of the body as well. So Rashi explains that Asher Nehem refers to both of these elements of leadership. One who takes them out could be the person who goes, let's go, and leads the charge, but then peels off and then heads back to the background. Yotzi'eim means that they go and they stay with them, and actually they are part of the group for the duration of the battle, a very, very important lesson in leadership and in hypocrisy. Rashi quotes a second explanation, which is where the emotions that I alluded to before comes in. Rashi says that Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking autobiographically and rather wistfully. Asher who will go out in front of them, and who will actually be there at the end, unlike me, Ribona Shalolam. The next leader should be allowed to finish the job. Should not be a person who leads them into the death but does not get the chance to bring them into Eretz Yisrael. Let it be a person who will be part of their journey from beginning to end and not just a, a, a footnote, or Moshe Rabbeinu is never a footnote, of course, but not just a, a, uh, a part of the story. Let them complete the destiny. Those are Rashi's explanations. And of course, it's hard to top that. But Rabbi Sachs has an absolutely brilliant insight that I think relates not only to communal leadership, but it refers to our own sense of responsibility and growth 
growth for ourselves as individuals. And it will be a Torah that I would try to think about on that desert island and reflecting upon my own place in this world, my own responsibilities and my own tafkid, my own sense of purpose inside of this world. Rabbi Sachs writes that Asher Yitzay Lifnehem actually is a double entendre. It doesn't just mean Yitzay Lifnehem who goes out in front of them. There is often a problem, especially in modern times, where parents or leaders try to be exactly like those who are leading. A parent who is their child's best friend or a, a teacher who views themselves as being one of the guys or one of the gals, views themselves as being just one of the crowd that they are trying to lead. One must go out in front of, must, one must have a magnetic or gravitational pull away from the center and away from the norm, trying to make the group different and better. However, writes Rabbi Sachs, there is a danger with such revolutionaries. If the revolutionaries become so distant and so separate from the pack and from that those that they are leading, that there is the ability, Rabbi Sachs actually writes these words, that you could look over your shoulder and realize that you went out too far and there's no one there to follow you at all. One has to be able to go out in front of them, but still bring them out to remain close enough and connected to the practical world that there is a connection between the ideas that are ahead of the world and the community that is meant to be affected by those ideas. That is an incredible recalibration that needs to happen both in our communal leadership and in our individual personal lives of growth. To be able to to make sure that the novelty and creativity of our ideas and our commitments do not outpace the reality of where we are. That is the most important link that we have in our lives, that we are always striving and moving ahead of ourselves, but not so far ahead of ourselves that we actually become disconnected from ourselves. That is something that happens to people, and it's something that could happen to communities and even some degree of failed leadership. Rabbi Sachs suggests that both Martin Luther King and Yitzchak Rabin, without discussing anything about their politics or their achievements in the arena, but in the generations in which they lived, by virtue of their assassinations, they clearly had gone beyond as leaders, and as they were revolutionaries for the history of the world, but in their particular societies, they had gotten too far ahead of where the society was meant to be. We may have benefited from that in the long run, but their leadership was not uh, sufficiently aligned with the people that they were trying to lead. It was it was a lot too quick, and they got out ahead too far of the leadership that they were meant to provide. Absolutely. Such an important thought um, to think about, especially now as Jewish people are being leaders in this world, and especially as the desert island concept, as you said, and really, really inspiring. So thank you so much for coming on today and sharing such really inspiring words of Torah. And it's been so great to have you on. A real, real pleasure. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.